lots of people think that all the pleasure of pegging is for the receiver because they're the ones actually like their physical body is being penetrated and the wearer of the strap-on doesn't have any biofeedback through the dildo. But in that position of being the giver, you might be really getting off on that this is uh, something different. Maybe you're always the receiver. And so this is exciting and playful. Part of the way that, that I teach is really about like normalizing, but also holding space that you can be uncomfortable and talk about it too. You don't have to be some like sexually liberated, you know, person in order to have really good sex. I'm Leanne. Welcome to Strippers and Sages. Today, for the season finale of Strippers and Sages, I'm speaking with Luna Matatas, a sex and pleasure educator with over 10 years of experience teaching sexual health and empowerment workshops. She celebrates body confidence, self-adoration, and building shame-free pleasure in and out of the bedroom. Luna's advice on sex and kink has been featured in Playboy, Cosmo, Vice, Women's Health, and Pornhub, and she created the brands Peg the Patriarchy and Meditate, Medicate, Masturbate as part of her line of sex-positive and feminist merchandise. Luna teaches a wide range of topics, including threesomes, BDSM, butt stuff, and sexual confidence, all of which we get into in this episode. And she is also the host of The Plug Podcast, which is all about anal play. So you can check her out there. We will link to all of her offerings in the coming year, and we highly encourage you to follow her. And as I said, this is the season finale. We hope that you've enjoyed our offerings. We would love to hear from you what your favorite episodes were, what you hope to hear more of in the coming season. And in the meantime, please, as always, share the love, send these episodes, tell your friends about Strippers and Sages. We look forward to coming back with you in the new year. We will continue to post media and quotes from old interviews and updates on our Instagram. So follow us there if you don't already. And you can go to strippersandsages.com to join our newsletter at some point when we are able to gather and get saucy together in a space in real time, we will be throwing some pretty stellar events. So sign up so you don't miss those. Happy New Year, everyone. And please stay tuned. We can't wait to bring you season three in 2021. Hello, Luna. Thank you so much for joining me today on Strippers and Sages. It's an absolute pleasure pleasure being the operative word here to have you today. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yay. So I would love to start by just hearing a little bit about how you got into this work. Like how did pleasure become your vocation and the area that you wanted to dedicate your life to and give people access to? Yeah, I love that question because I, I had a little bit of a a non-traditional path, I think, into this. Um, so I, I studied health promotion and I ended up focusing mainly on sexual health from a place of like public health. So epidemiology and disease reduction. And I, right after university, I went to work in Eastern and Southern Africa with HIV AIDS prevention and management. And so that was a really eye-opening experience. <laughs> and when I came back, I worked locally with also marginalized groups in Toronto and surrounding areas and for public health. And no matter where I was, like if I was in a village in Kenya, or I was in like a suburb of Toronto, you know, people wanted to know about pleasure. I could talk till I was blue in the face about condoms and people were still like how do I get her to eat my ass and how do I get him ah. to do this <laughs> so it was such a gap <laughs> a gap in terms and, of like the um, knowledge that people had 
<laughs> yeah, not a gap in terms of their whole, but yeah, a gap <laughs> in terms of knowledge. <laughs> um, and I eventually saw that that gap as a, an opportunity to, I, I learned so much in facilitating in um, kind of a different context when I was traveling and, t- and teaching. And so I really wanted to link up with, I'm lucky I'm in Toronto and we've got these feminist sex positive shops that are committed to pleasure. And I pitched a workshop to our local one, Good For Her, all about threesomes and they were like yeah okay sure teach the workshop and it just took off from there people really wanted this fun accessible playful space to talk about pleasure wow why was threesomes the starting point for you why was that the first workshop yeah so it's because I had a shit ton of bad threesomes (laughs) threesomes <laughs> and I was like this <laughs> like I had been married for for 10 years and I got divorced and after that it was like this process of kind of like discovering myself and falling in love with myself again and um so I I got sexually curious and I was with a partner who wanted to do a lot of swinging and and so this was my first exposure to to any of this stuff and um I didn't have any skills but I didn't know what to ask I didn't know how to communicate I didn't know how to manage difficult emotions like jealousy or insecurity. And so I learned a lot through that experience. And when I was Googling, like there was really not a lot of quality information. And so my class was, um, it's still one of my most popular classes five years later, because there isn't a lot of good information about threesomes, especially from a perspective of someone who might be a single and and going into threesomes. And so if you're the unicorn, if you're the third, you know, what, what kinds of things are important for you to negotiate ahead of time. So I think it was it was just very um, it's also one of the biggest fantasies for people. So it's it's always a <laughs> on this list of fantasies. So a lot of people that come out to the class, they don't necessarily plan on having a threesome tomorrow, but they're they're just like, "Whoa, I want to do this thing someday." Totally. And it yeah, it is a fantasy and then also something from my conversations and my experience. I see is like you're always like, "Want want." <laughs> like, "Why this should be better." Um so what what are some of the tips that you were able to offer and especially because you said that it came from your own experience starting with um, less subpar threesomes so were you able to first sort of course correct in your own life and then you had like this these offerings or was it something where you know those who or I think we learned through teaching I can see a, a scenario in which it's just like okay let me fantasize about what would make all of this work and present that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think it was it was more about me course correcting because mm-hmm. um, I my self esteem went up, you know, my body confidence went up, and I thought it was okay for me to take up more space with my desires and with what I wanted out of a fantasy, and not just kind of rely on everybody else. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think a lot of times when people, especially couples, when couples are are looking for a third, they forget that the third is a person and not just sort of like another accessory for their fantasy. Um, So they, they focus, you know, all the couples profiles on, on apps and stuff are all like, Oh, no drama looking for a third female. No, you know, fun come spice up our bedroom. And I'm like, well, what are you offering me? You know, like, like it's my fantasy too. So what, what, what are you bringing to the table as a couple? What are you looking for? And then same thing for if you're the third, what are you bringing to the table? What are you looking for? And your threesome fantasy, threesomes can happen in, you know, millions of iterations. So we want to make sure that we're like-minded about the fantasy and also what we all need for emotional and physical safety. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a beautiful way to think about it. I mean, I feel that so like so much, so many experiences that we want to have, right? It's it's so much about intention setting and the communication up front and going into that. So I'm curious to just back backtrack a little bit about your fascinating the origins of your pleasure uh, practice or pleasure offerings when you were traveling in all of these different places and having these conversations. You know, you said everywhere people are kind of universally interested and intrigued in pleasure. At the same time, I'm curious if you noticed with by, you know, you did a bit of an anthropological survey there and if different how people spoke about pleasure, whether it was different or whether the types of questions that arose were different or the types of experiences people were having. I'm very curious about that sort of more global perspective on this very universal issue. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I think globally what was universal is that, um, like, nowhere is there a really, you know, completely sex-positive culture that's free from shame. Mm-hmm. And that um, that shame and that uh, sex negativity, it operates through a lot of the same kinds of systems. So patriarchy through, you know, kind of body shame, through all this kind of stuff. But it manifests differently in a in an interpersonal level. Um, so, for example, when I was teaching in Kenya, um, especially if I was in smaller villages, there, there wasn't always access to a lot of things that I was talking about. So I'd be promoting things like internal condoms or, and, you know, you'd have to like ask somebody in the the, the office to like go get, so there was an, around things like privacy. Privacy was a, a big challenge. Um, there's also like specific gendered dynamics that, that we kind of take for granted, I think. And um, there, there's often a, a miscommunication and a, an assumption around developing countries or places like in Eastern and Southern Africa that, um, you know, like women are disempowered and, and really like women were running shit in a lot of ways. And so they, they were disempowered in the, in the same ways that we're disempowered in North America. Mm-hmm. So not being, not feeling comfortable to speak up about their desires, not feeling comfortable I mean, look at like what, you know, like WAP has done and how many people are mad about WAP. Like, <laughs> like it's Snoop Dogg is mad about WAP. Like, I don't like, why are we still talking about this in this way? So I think that same kind of shame around and misunderstanding around pleasure anatomy. I mean, nowhere in Kenya, nowhere in um, Canada, like, am, are we getting reproductive or we're getting any other kind of sex ed in high school other than reproductive sex ed. Like we're just learning like where babies come from. We're not learning pleasure anatomy. So I think that was a a big similarity. Um, And also that there's, there's different um, wonderful like context that that I think we, we miss and the nuances of how people engage in sex for things like ritual or, you know, polyamory was like an ancestral part of some Kenyan tribes. And so there's, there's different ethnic groups even within like one larger kind of um, country dynamic that have different relationships to sex. So I could be teaching in one area of the country and it was much more liberal around sexuality, whereas a more Christian area of the country would be like way more um, kind of punitive around sexuality. Mm-hmm. As here, right? Of course, that speaks to yeah. our Americanization <laughs> or our, these assumptions we have where it's like, Africa, (laughs) the solid block of Africa where everything is. Yeah. (laughs) And similarly, you know, I mean, I had a I had a guest from Pakistan who at one point was talking about her sex ed growing up. And she's like, you know, it's not like in the States where you learn blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, actually, we're not so evolved here either. It's pretty, it's pretty universally problematic. 
Yeah. Well, and so what um, what are some of the tools that you use in your I mean, you have so many offerings and I kind of just want to get into the smorgasbord and have you take the lead at some point and just, you know, sharing what the various offerings that you have are. And hopefully our listeners can tune into some of them. But as a broad question, how do you help people get curious about their erotic imagination? If that's I think so much lies in our imagination, right? That's the starting point of what's possible for our own pleasure. So what's your approach there? Yeah, I think a lot of people come to my classes looking for like specific technique. You know, mm-hmm. they've read Cosmo. Cosmo's like, here's the three ways to give the best blowjob ever. And, you know, it's only three. <laughs> <laughs> only three. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and like, I mean, technique is, is a part of sex, but technique limits us to our bodies and, and our sex and the way that we, we exist in sex is also what you mentioned, like this huge erotic potential of our imagination. And so my approach is always around, um, you know, what do you want to feel and what do you want to experience in the moment and so I help people kind of broaden what that feel might be and so people will say well I want to feel horny or I want to feel orgasmic well maybe you also want to feel powerful maybe you want to feel helpless maybe you want to feel surrendered maybe you want to feel naughty taboo you know childlike animal-like like you know there's it's fantasy and so we get to take up space and borrow these characteristics from either archetypes or characters or um, our imagination and then we embody them so we become this vessel for for this eroticism so yes you can give that great blowjob but imagine if you're giving it from a place of like "Mm," like I feel powerful doing this or I feel of service doing this I feel adoring doing this I love that. Yeah. And I think that uh, that mental shift, right, in recognizing it's the body, mind, spirit connection, really, that Mm. we're talking about that kind of verticality where you can't just have one, but it's eroticism is where they they kind of all integrate. Um, So what are some of the what are some of the courses or webinars that you are most excited or most known for, would you say? most excited about? Yeah. Um, I love that question because I, I teach, um, like I was redoing my website and I have over 30 like webinars I up saw. and I was like, I was like, I didn't even realize. <laughs> I was like, this is a lot. Um, but I, I do play favorites. I, I definitely love teaching anything around feminine dominance and erotic dominance. Um, I think it's an area where we've just kind of seen what's in porn and which is so limiting in terms of body representation, in terms of like, not everyone needs to be cold with whips and chains. I like to dominate a tutu, you know, like you can do whatever you want and make it more playful. Mm-hmm. Um, I also also, I do love teaching anything butt stuff. I think um, somehow I became the butt stuff person <laughs> and <laughs> don't tell my mom. And like, um, because I also feel like anal is, you know, everyone has a butthole. So it's something that's like relatable for, for all genders. Mm. Um, and also we see so much like really poor I mean porn is not there to educate us but we see a lot of poor anal sex practice in porn because we assume that it's not performance and and it is performance so it doesn't have our our real bodies and um expectations in it um and then my other one that that I really I really love to teach is on sexual confidence Mm -hmm. and um that one is so personal to me and I think it's something that everyone comes into sex feeling unconfident about something whether it's Mm -hmm. their body 
body, their ability to perform. Maybe they feel guilty about their fantasies. And um, that tends to be one of my most popular classes, but also where people get into feeling empathy for, you know, of someone's awkwardness or someone's shyness. And, and so it's a, such a good opportunity to let go of self-judgment mm-hmm. in that class and, and to really just like feel like you belong in this erotic experience. Mm, I love that. That that sounds like especially the confidence course essential. And is it are your offerings all sort of like I, I can download your webinar and then I take it on my own? Or are you doing do you build community and have opportunities? I don't know, for practice or sharing or how do you actually put that pedagogy into practice for people? Yeah, yeah, I have. Um, so there's there's about 30 on demand ones. And then I just released I've got uh, about six coming up that are live in January and February, and they all come with a replay as well. So people can learn at their own pace. But the joy of the live class is that people get to bring their questions, they get to get inspired by other people's comments and um, really feel like you're engaging in something fun and also informative and a conversation that we don't really have in other places. Like, I don't know, you and I probably have really sex positive circles, but most people don't have um, friends that are are both open and knowledgeable about Mm -hmm. this stuff. And so I think people really benefit from having this like community of strangers Mm -hmm. that that I get to facilitate um, and an opportunity to, to kind of interact in real time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of why I started the podcast where I was like, we're not people aren't talking about this stuff, <laughs> like, you know, in the nitty gritty detail of of what's the best angle for pegging kind of thing, or how do I get over this, this shame that I have in this particular situation. So what would be one? Uh, can you give us a taste of, of like a practice or something that you offer people in terms of the, their erotic confidence? Yeah. Um, one of them, I think, is that um, there there has to be something in you that connects to feel in yourself. Like you got to feel like you are full of your own desire and your own erotic, you know, intentions. And then you can go into a space and kind of gift that to someone or receive from someone. And I think a lot of us go into sexual experiences, myself included, and we want to be devoured by somebody else's desire. I want you to make me feel validated Mm -hmm. in my sexiness. And that's a really precarious position to put yourself in. Because if this person's dealing with their own shit, if they're here, um, you know, not with good intentions, and, you know, then you're sort of left more vulnerable to kind of this devastation. But if you go in feeling like, yeah, like I'm feeling myself and, you know, won't you join me? That's a really different approach. Um, And it's expecting that you are going to have the conditions that you need for your pleasure met versus like hoping, you know, fingers crossed that like this person will will meet your desire. So feeling yourself can come through. Um, it can come through things like movement. So I've got like a, uh, it's so perfect for your podcast. I have like a sexy stripper playlist that that I put on for myself before I, oh, I get yes. it on. We'll need that. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. I will need that. <laughs> you need this. We need this. Yes. We'll co-create one together. Perfect. Like, yeah. <laughs> I, I actually, it's funny you say that because I've been, uh, as of late, well, I'm about to, I'm going to interrupt you for a second. Will you remember That's where okay. you're at? <laughs> yes, 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 yes. So I, um, it's funny because I was, I was like on a dating app and I, I put in my, 
you know, they have these three questions. And one of the questions was, you should you should comment or you should message me if. And I filled it in saying, you know, because I was like, what do I really want to call in? I was like, I want to call in like someone who knows how to dance and like thinks that dancing is kind of a form of foreplay and like, let's get saucy. So I was like, you should message me if you know how to move or love to move and want to get saucy dancing with me by the fire. So somebody messages me and is like, well, what's what music gets you sauciest? And I was like, ooh, good question. Let me, yeah. and I'm, a, I'm like an aspiring DJ. I pride myself on my musical taste. And I was like, yeah, I got this. And then I went into my, you know, vast music library. I was like, um, how, hmm, uh, how do I have a sex podcast but not have like a Get Saucy playlist? <laughs> and I've sort of spent the last two weeks trying to make one very unsuccessfully. Where, cause it's, and it's interesting because it's like once you sort of put that label where you're like, this is something that is sexy, right? It's like A, subjective, B, you know, what what degree is this like an up, bump and grind sex? How are we curating an experience? Which is all just to say this is a present topic for me. I'm very stressed about it. And I would love your insights <laughs> on how to properly sculpt the perfect saucy, sexy stripper playlist and uh, <laughs> and to hear yours. <laughs> yeah. You know, I can totally I never framed it that way, but I can I can totally relate to that because I'm so embarrassed when people want my list. And sometimes I do share it with the, the class, but I'm like, what if they don't think it's hot or they right. think it's dumb because the weekend is all over it, you know, but like <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's very much if I hear a song and I'm like, mm, and like it makes me want to move in a certain yes. way. And it's not about choreography. It's not about what I look like, but like it really it's like it it embodies me and I get to kind of be playful, but also expansive. Like I feel like anything that makes mm -hmm. me want to stretch out my chest or like spread legs or arms, um, I take those as cues that like, OK, this is like something that's really filling up my sensual kind of side. Mm, I love that. Yeah, I, I I ended up fielding the question in lieu of sending my perfectly crafted playlist by saying anything with like a deep bass that makes me want to move my hips. Like, it's just what oh, you there said, you go. right? Yeah. Anything that does the like, <laughs> that's the perfect noise yes. effect for like a successful <laughs> playlist result. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> okay, so you're so you offer this playlist and you get people embodied and and what else? Where where else do you take them in terms of bolstering that embodied confidence? Yeah, yeah. Another area for that is um, definitely talking about self-pleasure and solo pleasure and masturbation and how, you know, through self-touch that it can lead to orgasm or not to orgasm, doesn't really matter, but that it's about like tuning into what parts of your body wake up when you start to engage your erotic energy. So for some people, naturally that you think genitals, but you know, your skin might feel really good or maybe your chest feels really good or your hair or your scalp or or something like that. So self-pleasure gives us an opportunity to be selfish and mm -hmm. also just like take our time and, and mm -hmm. really sink into like, look at what I can do on my own. So if I'm inviting someone else into this, they better be adding to this sauce, right? Like they better be like bringing something that actually um, helps like partner with this and not steals from it, not tames it, not asks me to edit it, mm -hmm. but that um, really wants to be responsive to this. So I love I love talking with that about people or um, about that to people, too. Yeah, that's that's so beautiful. Yeah, I agree. And my 
we've, I've spoken about self-pleasure before and how the taking away the goal, like making it non-goal oriented, I think, because that can be a, a big barrier, especially for people who maybe don't have a very cultivated practice already. And it's like, it's just about your own exploration. And then also exactly what you're saying, which is like, once you realize what you can give yourself, the bar kind of raises in terms of what you're willing to tolerate and what you, what you believe is possible with another person. So think that's really yeah yeah (laughs) keep raising that bar Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah yeah and then the last thing I teach people is um that really like feeling yourself is an everyday practice and so there are moments every day where you can build up that connection to your erotic self so it's not so unfamiliar when you want to bring it into a space with another person so that could be something as simple as you know we're all washing our hands a lot and so (laughs) as we should be but like if you're washing your hands, you know, making eye contact with yourself in the mirror and and really just like giving yourself a cute smile or a wink and uh, giving yourself that permission to feel cute, to feel mm-hmm. sexy, to feel like you are enough. Um, it can also be when you're in the shower, you know, maybe you have an opportunity to have a shower by candlelight and maybe you have an opportunity to spend a few more minutes massaging your scalp and scratching your, your fingernails over your scalp and seeing what those sensations feel like. When when you're moisturizing your body, it doesn't just have to be slap and lotion on yourself. It could be an opportunity to like sink into your skin and it doesn't always have to lead to sexual touch, but but that sensation, that sensuality, that responsiveness of your senses can be something that we can then use when we're in sexy situations. Mm, I love that. Yeah. You know, you're making me think as you're speaking, just as as I've come to think about eros and eroticism really as just about liveness, right? It's about experiencing our radical liveness. So when you're talking about that sensation, again, it's not even that you're being sexual. It's that you're you're taking that extra moment to connect with yourself in the mirror, to like stroke your own hair. And it's it's to remind yourself that you are sensory, a sense a sensual and sensing being. And I've also been thinking about just how to move, how we move through the world, right? Like it's all connected. For me, I have had a recent kind of dark night of the soul rebirth where it's, I've had to emerge and be like, okay, everything needs to just shift in my internal life. I'm suffering from like the worst insomnia and it's because my nervous system is shot. And it's like, well, how am I moving through the world? Right. And, um, I, I studied in a program called the erotic basis of being, which is sort of just this idea. And it was very, it was focused on Qigong. And so how are we moving through the world and looking at ourselves as erotic beings and how I've studied this all, but wasn't putting it into practice. You know, I'm like opening doors really quickly and slamming things and like racing in my car. And I've lately been just trying to think about as, as my teacher has said, like how to make the air fond of you just moving so that the air around you becomes fond of you. And I think when it's that state of almost moving and constant meditation and awareness, which involves a degree of sensory awareness that then I think makes us more receptive and embodied in in these moments of either self-pleasure or pleasure with another. So really looking at how that, how, how we bring that into everything we do, as you're saying. Yeah, I love that. You spoke about the orchid on your on your site, <laughs> which I thought was this beautiful metaphor. I'd love for you to tell that story and then maybe segue into uh, your work on meditating, medicating, and masturbating. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm such an orchid daddy. I feel like mm-hmm. my, my orchids are 
I'm like a, I'm a submissive to my orchids, whatever they want, two ice cubes a week, whatever. Um, and, and I really love orchids because I think their symbolism, at least for me, was so much about um, this idea that you can be alive and you can be doing work and you can be healing and growing and not necessarily in ways that our world appreciates. And so when the orchids in bloom, we're all like, oh my God, look at the blooms. But when it's not blooming, you know, it's still doing work under the soil. And and that's where a lot of our work happens. And it's the same thing with sexy stuff is that, you know, you really have um, a lot of emphasis in our society around like appearance. And and I, I've said it often um, to my classes, like what I look like is like the least interesting thing about me. It, it really, and it, it's actually the least interesting thing about everybody because we're all aging and dying. <laughs> so it's like, it's like, if you hang your hat on appearance, that's a pretty, you know, like, um, kind of a frail thing to to rely on for mm-hmm. your confidence. Um, but I mean, that's the world that, that we live in. And so there are times where we're focused on that. And it's just to make space for times where we can really go inwards and, and nurture those roots. And I think for my Meditate, Medicate, Masturbate brand, um, it's all about cannabis and, and sex and mindfulness. And um, I was high one day and came up with it. It's a good and day already. Like, <laughs> right? It's a great day. Um, and and it was it was very much about um, cannabis being uh, a facilitator for for some of us. And for some people, they use it to get more creative during sex because it expands their their mind and it expands the way that they feel they can embody their fantasies. Uh, and for other people, it helps them get into their body because it increases sensation. And so you've got more like nerve endings that are alive and more blood flow. And for other people, they use cannabis because it helps them relieve things like anxiety or physical discomfort like vaginismus or pain during penetration. So I think there, there's so much that that's out there. And, and especially being a, a woman of color talking about cannabis, it was really important for me to um, ground it in something that uh, was about like healing. And, and was like kind of the return to the roots of, of the plant. And yes, recreational use is awesome too. I'm all for that. Um, but I think in our in our sexual selves, there's so much potential for um, marijuana to, to add to that if that's a tool that people choose. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. And are there, how do we, I mean, there's, it's one thing to just sort of get high, have sex and be like, well, that was extra fun, right? But is there... Are you offering a sort of more guided practice or or how do you what's the intention that you hope people bring to it so that it does become more intentional in terms of that usage? Yeah, I kind of bring people um, and I do uh, like lots of people kind of are like, okay, well, I just want to buy a CBD pen or I want to do this or I want to do that. And so what I want to bring people is is this collection of information that helps them look at the menu of, of opportunities and ways to use cannabis. You don't have mm-hmm. to get psychoactive effects from cannabis in order to benefit from it in sex. You can have just a CBD experience. And so my class is um, it's very cute because, you know, I invite everyone to get high. I'm not high during it because I wouldn't be able to to have a straight thought. But um, <laughs> people are, are there and kind of feeling like they're in the supportive community because cannabis also still carries a stigma, right? I mean, like we can talk about wine and alcohol and like as if it's not also a drug that impacts our body. And um, cannabis, even though it's becoming, you know, legalized in lots of places, it still carries a stigma of like the stoner. Mm-hmm. So I think there's, there's this ability to kind of see that how many different people come together to want to engage in 
in cannabis. Um, and in January, I'm I'm expanding the webinar so that it also comes with um, a cannabis workbook. So it has like prompts in it to help guide you. Mm-hmm. Um, it also has an area where it's going to let you track your experiences because I mean cannabis. So much of the information that's out there is not necessarily research based. It's anecdotal research, mm-hmm. and so we want to capture our own anecdotal experiences. What works for me may not work for you. What worked for you on Tuesday may not work for you on Friday. Um, so to feel like people have a grounded experience. So my course and the workbook becomes an anchor for them mm-hmm. as they start to explore. Mm. That's awesome. I would love to segue. This is not a segue. This is an abrupt like. <laughs> I just desperately want to talk about Peg the Patriarchy. Oh, tell yes. me everything. <laughs> also came up with that high, but <laughs> that, was a, that was a real good day. What strain is that? <laughs> you know, it's lucky I wrote them down. Like, who knows where we'd be? I'd have nothing to talk about. <laughs> um, so Peg the Patriarchy is my baby. And um, I came up with it when I, I first started teaching my classes in 2015 um, on my own as, a, as an entrepreneur. And uh, it really was a about this idea of subverting the patriarchy. And so the patriarchy has no gender. Although when we talk about pegging, pegging is a fantasy that that definitely focuses on a, a heterosexual interaction of someone strapping it on and giving anal sex to a cisgendered man. Um, peg, peg the patriarchy takes it kind of to like more of a metaphorical level. So instead of fucking the patriarchy, which is kind of like, you know, fuck the patriarchy, get rid of it. But subverting the patriarchy is like, whoa, like this system works for nobody. And so we really need to take the power out of it and redirect that power and redistribute it. So we're not looking for equality. We want equity through the peg the patriarchy. Equity through pegging the patriarchy. So <laughs> so go a little deeper into that in terms of that that subversion and how we how we reset and get into this equal footing, so to speak, through this action. Yeah. So um, the. The subversion part of it is is looking at patriarchy as as a system that governs you know certain behaviors. So the it, one of the behaviors that it governs is like the gender binary. So men do this, women do this. Everyone else in between is wrong. <laughs> if you are more masculine in a feminine body, that's wrong. And so subversion would be about opening all of this up and really dropping those assumptions that we've kind of embodied in a socio cultural and a political way. And it would focus more on like well. What, what is our, our self-identity and our expression? What does that mean for how we contribute? And so the limitation of me being a woman and you assuming that I can do this or I'm this way or because I wear pink, this means this about me, all of that would disappear if we subvert it. And so the, the power would actually be redistributed more equitably. And for, for people who are masculine or for men, um, it would also allow them to embody things that are you know currently holding them back. So if we can't allow men to be tender or soft or um, characteristics that we traditionally have assigned to the feminine, then this is where we get a lot of, you know, emotional issues. We get repression. We get an inability to to have the permission to define masculinity in any other way other than like big, strong men must not feel things, right? Like, so... Definitely (laughs) must not get pegged. (laughs) Definitely must not get pegged. Yeah. And especially around the sexual fantasy of pegging, I think lots of people... um, you know, who have penises can kind of feel that it says something about their sexuality. And so it says you're gay or it says that you, you know, like this. And 
Um, I think peg the patriarchy can translate down into the those sexual assumptions. And I mean, everyone has a butthole. So like it's, you know, and and gay men, not all across the board, enjoy penetrative or, or anal sex. So, I mean, when we start to break down in conversations like these, it actually sounds really silly. But when we're operating in, in interpersonal dynamics, we bring in these biases. And so peg the patriarchy can kind of help us bring that to the surface. Like, what have we been taught that no longer serves us. Totally. As you write, it's medicine for the energetic tight asses for the closed off. (laughs) So apropos, I mean, I I spoke recently to an ex-boyfriend actually about uh, his experience for the first time using butt plugs and just sort of starting to explore that world with his now fiance. And, um, and it was just like, it was so profoundly healing and healing for both of them in the sense of like there really is a bit of a recalibration that happens since traditionally cis women are or, or you know women with who can be penetrated folks who can be penetrated are the ones who are right like if you have a vulva you're being penetrated and that's like a super vulnerable situation like if it really is i think um we we see how that dynamic plays out structurally in society and so returning to that so-called root, I think, is a very powerful way to begin that subversion process. Um, And I'm thinking also of Z Royale, who was on the show uh, last week or two weeks ago, who who leads a spank workshop and was talking about uh, why it's so powerful to kind of activate the root chakra and how that, you know, also has this, this reverberation in sex. So I can see how it would have some really profound physical and spiritual benefits for everyone involved beyond even just the sociopolitical. And I'm curious, like, you know, as we as we imagine the culture we want to live in, what do you see needs to shift on a societal, political, economic, cultural level in terms of stigma, in terms of structures, in terms of systems and education in order to create a world in which, you know, uh, who were you saying before is criticizing WAP? Snoop is? Yeah, like where, where Snoop can outwardly be like uh rap rapping about being pegged like shamelessly you know where even the most masculine on the spectrum are kind of able to engage with a practice like that how do we get there yeah I think I think one of the the big things that that we need to focus on is um really I think a lot of the work that that's already being done and and folks that are engaging in a lot of this like gender fuckery and and really just like questioning, you know, why do we have certain expectations or certain rules based on genitals? You know, like it doesn't really just doesn't fit our narrative anymore. And maybe it did at one point, but it's actually become more limiting to us than than helpful. And so I think um, working and that doesn't mean that you can't identify on the binary. You can definitely be, you know, identify as a cisgendered man or a cisgendered woman. um, But it really allowing space for gender fluidity and other genders to be just as valid as as the two that we have. Um, I also think that there's there's a lot to be said around um, the ways in which we allow porn to kind of exist. And, and it, it really exists in this, you know, very, um, it, it exists in a way that's serving a certain person's gaze. And it's often serving the desires and the fantasies of cisgendered white men. And we all know that people other than cisgendered white men are also engaging in porn. And so a good example is um, I, I run a race and kink series where we, we question the intersections of race and racism within kink. 
And uh, when we talk about race play, or if you were to go on to any, you know, Pornhub or whatever and look up, you know, you'll see like there there is no white category, but there is an Asian category or Desi or like these, you know, kind of it's ebony. You know, it's, it's very much around like, well, race play can also happen between like me, a brown person and someone who's a black person. And, and but we have this like white black dynamic because it's serving a particular audience. So I think creating more space for feminist porn, for queer porn, uh, paying for your porn is a great place to start. If you are watching porn right now and not paying for it, you are stealing from sex workers. <laughs> and so like, I think our, our ethics around porn is not necessarily that it's bad or that we have to get rid of it, but that um, we need it to be more ethical and more representative and more voices creating more producers that just aren't um, cisgendered white men. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I also think around like representation, even in our, our sexy spaces. So lingerie brands or, um, you know, different seeing different bodies actually influences the way that that we hold true for for things like patriarchy, because patriarchy says these val- these bodies are valid. These bodies are sexy. These bodies are attractive and worthy of respect. And it really limits like 99 percent of us. <laughs> and so like no one's benefiting from this narrow idea of sexy or worthiness when there's so many different kinds of bodies that um, can take up space in so many different kinds of ways. And so the more that we can hold space for that, and you can do that by following curators and, and creators that are not, you know, the typical ones that you would see featured on a place like Pornhub, right? Um, we also see a lot of creators that are diverse um, and, and taking up space with more mature kind of representations of sexuality, whereas in mainstream mainstream porn, it's the infantilization of women's bodies. So it's, you know, looking like children. And that's what we're like promoting through through porn. And, and really, they're, you know, things like pubic hair, things like periods, things like bodies doing stuff they do, like sag or wrinkle, like it would be great to see more of that and, and have access to that because it influences our gaze. Mm, mm, absolutely. Yeah, we've had a couple of guests talking about porn and its influences. And I think it's it's so nuanced because it has such potential, actually, right? Like if what we want is to take away stigma and take away all of the secrecy around sex, like, you know, imagery shapes our consciousness so much. So it, it has potential if it's done consciously to be a, a source of education and liberation and whatnot, right? And we're seeing that that is true in that we're seeing how it is already shaping our societal consciousness around sex. Like that is happening, right? And so that it is actually a very potent tool is evident already. And so it's like you're saying, how do we actually harness this potential to be having a liberatory rather than a repressive effect on society at large? Yeah. Well, I, I'm curious also, I mean, and we'll move on from pegging. It'll, it'll be hard, but we'll move on from pegging. <laughs> hey, we must go. Yeah. <laughs> but just, you know, as now to bring it back to the personal in your work, since you do have a couple courses on it as well, like what what are, especially I think a lot of people are a little bit anal phobic. So what are some of the um, benefits or, or the potential for growth that you see that people tend to experience from your courses or just from their own exploration? 
Yeah, I think I think especially with anal sex, um, people have had bad experiences, <laughs> and we've we've had if you if you're a receiver, maybe you've had an experience where um, you have felt like discomfort or pain, and maybe didn't speak up about it, and just wanted to like kind of get through it, or you offer your partner anal as like a special treat, and so you're just kind of grinning and bearing it, and then if you're the giver, you may also have trouble figuring out like, well, what do I do other than put it in? You know, and and I mean, the anus, the butthole part, so the external part of the anus has a ton of nerve endings. And so you can engage in anal sex without ever having to penetrate anybody. You can do things like rimming. You can put a vibrator against their butthole. You can stimulate the per- the prostate through the perineum. It's all going to be more indirect stimulation, but it, it still gives that area an opportunity to fill up with blood flow, to get, you know, aroused. And then you can decide where you want to take it. If you want to go to penetration, if you want to do something else. So I think for for both givers and receivers, having uh, a better understanding of anal sex pleasure anatomy, it just makes you a more skilled lover. Like just because you've had lots of anal sex experience doesn't necessarily mean you're skilled. If you're still using spit instead of lube, you are not skilled. (laughs) (laughs) Don't be a rookie. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Don't be an anal rookie. (laughs) It's like, you know, if your lips are chapped, you don't just lick them. You got to get chapstick. That's what we're talking about with the anus. Um, And having an anal... experience that wasn't pleasurable for a lot of people. Sometimes it's it's an emotional thing that our body holds on to, but it can also be a physical problem that you're creating lasting damage that's just going to be really annoying and uncomfortable to have to take care of. And so fissures are totally possible with anal tissue. Um, Anal tissue is a lot thinner and it's not self-lubricating in the same way that vaginal tissue is. So um, we really need to create these textures for sex, whether it's vaginal, whether it's anal, and this velvety texture that lube can create kind of goes against a lot of what people think about. I'm I'm often teaching at bachelorette parties and they're like, well, I don't want to use lube because, you know, I want it to feel tighter. And I'm like, what is this nonsense about tighter? <laughs> like, it's so related to our concepts around virginity, which is bullshit. <laughs> and so we think tighter is better. And like, well, maybe his dick needs to be bigger. I don't know. Like, maybe my <laughs> vagina's big and your dick's too small. So, but we we take it upon the vagina. It's, a, it's about the vagina being, you know, tighter. Right. So I think, um, you know, really understanding that pleasure anatomy doesn't work that way. It, it's actually doesn't. Some people like bigger things. Some people like fuller feelings, but it's not necessarily um, the end goal to have like this like friction based penetration. No, personally, something to be avoided, I believe. Yes. (laughs) Friction based penetration sounds very challenging. Yeah. Yes. And and what is the sort of, um, I don't know, benefit is the word, but maybe growth that cis women maybe can experience from engaging as uh, purveyors of pegging. So not not being in a receptive state and and maybe from there we'll segue into your dom, the femdom. I think they're so related. Yeah. 
I think that's a great question because I think um, lots of people think that all the pleasure of pegging is for the receiver because they're the ones actually like their physical body is being penetrated and the wearer of the strap-on doesn't have any biofeedback through the dildo. Um, But this goes back to like what we were saying around erotic intentions and erotic embodiment in that in that position of being the giver, you might be really getting off on that this is uh, something different. Maybe you're always the receiver. And so this is exciting and playful. Um, you might also get off on feeling like you're in a position of power. I mean, pegging can definitely just be about giving and receiving. It doesn't have to be about dominance and submission. Um, you might also get physical sensation out of it. That use of like, you mentioned like your hips during, Mm -hmm. uh, dancing. So Mm -hmm. anything where you're thrusting, where you're like generating energy around there and even the pounding against someone that can stimulate indirectly areas of the clitoris through the moans pubis. And Mm -hmm. so, For a lot of people, there's physical pleasure. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, people like me, we also get off on, like, watching other people have pleasure and, like, Mm -hmm. taking that in. Like, look at your partner, like, moaning or their breath changing or, you know. And so there's a lot for the giver, for sure. Totally. So let's talk about dom work and how you see that being all of the things. Healing, empowering, inspiring, expansive. Tell us about your work around it. Super interested. Yeah. Yeah. Um, For feminine dominance, uh, I got into it because my fantasies were very much submissive before I started exploring feminine dominance. And I think for a lot of uh, women and femme people, we've only seen femmes kind of represented as submissive and like my mom's like dirty books were all about you know he flung her on the bed and then her blouse popped open and so we we've all seen these kind of storylines um and I actually got really frustrated with the dominance that that I was engaging with and it was a lot of um cis male doms at the time and I was like I don't like this like this doesn't feel good I want to see what it's like if I could like dom and and what that's all about there's got to be something good in this and so it was actually just out of curiosity and I think that's a great thing to have this intellectual curiosity about sex as versus like, well, I don't get it. So I must not be into it because you might discover another way to get turned on. Um, And the way that feminine dominance is portrayed again in porn and kind of in society, like anytime you see like a pro dom or a dominatrix shown on TV, she's always like carrying a whip and like in stilettos and like, you know, a very harsh, cold kind of vibe. Um, But feminine dominance can, can also be a vessel for nurturance or adoration or I'm very much a goddess when I'm femdoming and so I want to be supreme to my submissive in this fantasy. So all of these fantasies around erotic power exchange give us a chance to play with power that we may or may not have outside of the fantasy. It gives us a chance to expand parts of ourselves that maybe we're uncomfortable with. So feelings like fear, feelings like being bossy, feelings like taking up too much space. Um, when you create this erotic scene that has boundaries and it has a stop and a or start and a stop time, that can make you feel a little bit more comfortable in in exploring, you know, what does it feel like to to take up space in this way? Um, And then there's the the submissive. I think like having someone um, engage and trust you in that way and and surrender power to you because dominance can only take power that's been given to them. Like we can't just walk into a room and be like, I own you now. Um, And so it, it really improved my communication. It improved my ability to be intuitive 
intuitive and really present with someone in a verbal and nonverbal way because we have so much accountability as a dominant um, for safety in a scene, for making sure that things are produced. It's a lot of work to be a dom. (laughs) (laughs) Totally a big responsibility. Yeah, yeah. And wielding that kind of, even the the power of that responsibility can be really erotic. Is that, mm-hmm. oh, like this person trusts me. Mm-hmm. And so I want to facilitate a really good experience for both of us. As you were talking, I was thinking about uh, Augusto Boal, who I wrote my thesis on in college, and I studied theater. And he has a pedagogy called Theater of the Oppressed, where he would get together, he would go into villages in South America and, you know, get townspeople together and essentially do a form of role-playing geared toward solutions and empowerment. And so it's presenting a sort of political situation or a conflict or a, a a scenario in which, you know, a group or an individual is actually being actively oppressed and creating both giving the community both the tools and like the embodied practice of how to confront those situations or to shift the dynamic or et cetera. And it has a lot of uses um, and it's been a long time. So, you know, that's not the only, it's, it's not the, the Wikipedia definition might be different, but I, I'm thinking about that in terms of feminine dominance, right? Whereas the feminine has been so historically oppressed in our culture. And so it's, I think stepping into that role and really feeling what it is to be sexually dominant. And that can mean anything, as you said earlier, it's not just like leather is just an aesthetic, right? Whips are just, that's, that's not what it's about. It's about that energetic space and how I think that there can be real empowerment and um, expansiveness in like having that somatic experience of what it is to be dominant, which isn't about overpowering someone, right? It's actually just about being in your own self-dominance in a way, right? And in, like you're saying, being really sensitive to a situation and also fully in your power. So I think that's really important work that you're doing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think there's, um, there's so much confidence that comes from having to say what you mean, having to say what you want, and um, really making it clear. I think I learned my best sexual communication in, in kink, because you have to, you have to be able to say, this is what's on the table, and this is what isn't. Right. Because kink, and uh, it's, it's stepping away from whatever the default, like vanilla version of sex is where there is some sort of script that often confines us all. And so when you're going off script, then you have no choice but to get really specific and communicative about it. And that's really awesome. I think that's I'm see I'm learning that that's some a big factor that draws people to kink. Right. It's actually people don't always just go into it because they're they feel kinky and want to play with feathers or whatever, like the stereotypical understanding of kink is. Right. It's actually just saying, oh, I want to actually enter it a space that is intentionally explorative and like boundary pushing. And I think that's where so much self-discovery lies. Like that's why sex is so important for our own like wholeness and and discovery. Well, just before we wrap up, I'm just would love to hear a little bit about your personal upbringing and like how sex was talked about in the home where we know that shapes us so much and what your own journey was maybe even before you started doing the work internationally, but just in your own sort of erotic trajectory and, you know, where you began and where you ended up. Yeah. um, So I grew up in a 
you know, Caribbean family. Uh, like, my parents are immigrants, and, like, we didn't talk about sex. I didn't get a sex talk. And I got a book when I got my period that was called 28 Days, and that was it. And um, so I didn't have a sex-positive household. Um, I, I really didn't go to sex-positive school. I mean, most of us didn't, but I was in Catholic school, so I really learned nothing. Um, and I think one of my, my most, um, I think, influential experiences uh, probably came through the volunteer hours that I, I had to do in high school. And I ended up volunteering at an HIV AIDS network when I was 16. And at that time, it was a lot of gay men's um, focus on, for HIV AIDS. And so I was like, you know, stacking pamphlets or folding things. And I was like, wait, what? People have sex other than to make babies? And so it, <laughs> Why would they it really do that? opened up. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, what? Who are these people? Um, and so I was just really curious. And also being surrounded by all these activists was was amazing for my, my self-development. Um, but I, I also was, was very... I didn't start having sex until I was... Or with other people, I didn't start having sex until I was, I think, 21 or 22. And I had so much body shame. And I, I thought that I couldn't fit into this idea of being sexy. And so I, I really just kind of wanted to disappear and not be seen. And so I masturbated a lot. And I, I had my own vibrators. And um, that was great. But I didn't really feel comfortable having sex with other people because I didn't feel like I was enough. I didn't feel I had anything to bring to the table. Um, and so it, it very much shaped this idea that for me, pleasure was determined by other people. And yet I was experiencing pleasure from like my own hands, my own vibrator, my own fantasies. And I was cyber sexing all over the place. And, you know, that that time it was like the era of like Yahoo chat and stuff. And um, so I was really engaging in my erotic imagination, loved erotica, you know, loved reading um, what was available that was sexy. And so when I, I moved into doing this work, I really don't take for granted that, you know, most people don't have, um, even if we have access to more visual sex stuff or we have more access to porn, these truths are still really palatable for people. The idea that you're not sexy enough, the idea that sex is bad or taboo or that you can't talk about it. And so I think part of the way that, that I teach is really about like normalizing, but also holding space that you can be uncomfortable and talk about it too. Like these, you don't have to be some like sexually liberated, you know, person in order to have really good sex. You don't have to be into threesomes or sex parties to be sex positive. You really just have have to believe that there is some worth for you in connecting to your own erotic relationship with yourself. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think a lot of us enter this realm in terms of wanting to be vocal in it or doing work in it from that place of having had our own journey and then having our awakening and being like, oh, God, like, you know, I feel like the person who was just born somehow had like the perfect childhood and, you know, the healthiest of experiences from the get go is like, why are we even talking about this? So, you know, I think that and I, I think that's important to name because I feel I sometimes worry that, um, people who maybe would want to come to this work or, or take a workshop or something just would have a story that's like, oh, well, those people, those women seem 
so just like lit up and they're they're already there right so they're we're different right that's not me so i it's not accessible and so i think yeah sharing that i mean every sex educator i speak to or anyone doing workshops or intimacy work or dom work like everyone for the most part uh, has turned i think either the wounding or just the sort of discomfort and repression into the superpower and into the offering which i think is really really powerful well, just to wrap us up, um, what what do you have upcoming? What are your offerings in the new year? Is there anything that you want to plug? How can people work with you? Yeah, I want to plug the plug, which <laughs> <Yes>. is <laughs> my podcast. Um, so the plug podcast is all about anal sex. Oh, great. Um, and so the next one is all about prostate pleasure. So I'm excited. I'm interviewing a doctor, which is really cool. Um, and I've got tons of new webinars coming up. Um, there's stuff around BDSM, around submission, femdoming, penis pleasure, um, daddy role play, all kinds of things in, in January and February. And people can find out about that on my website, lunamitadas.com. Awesome. Well, we'll link to all of that. We'll definitely link to your podcast and cross promote. And it was such a real pleasure speaking with you. I'm so grateful to you for making the time. Yeah, you too. Thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. If this episode turned you on, consider dropping a five in the ratings, subscribing to the show and sending it to a friend. You can help us build our audience this way and we would be so grateful. Special thank you to Liliana Estes for editing this episode. Thank you, Casey Odesser and Sasha Carney for their rigorous research and preparation for these conversations, and to Ben Euphrat for his continued guidance on this show. Stay sexy, folks. <laughs> <laughs>